In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the 21st Sunday after Pentecost, so we're nearing the end of this season. We only have another month to go before Advent starts, and we're uh, nearing the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we're already in that portion where he's arrived at Jerusalem. He's already cleansed the temple. He's argued with the chief priests and the elders. After them come the Herodians. After the Herodians now uh, come the Sadducees, who just before this passage are trying to trick Jesus, you know, the Sadducees, if you remember, don't believe in a resurrection. And so they're saying, uh, you know, how does this resurrection work? Is everybody married in heaven? And so Jesus uh, squares them on that. And now we have the Pharisees who are come, and they're also asking him questions. So he's been kind of uh, bombarded by this series of interlocutors. And now the Pharisees at the end ask him, which is the greatest commandment? The Pharisees had done some very careful study, and they had counted about 613 commandments that are given in the scriptures, and they're saying, look at all these, how do we organize them, how do we understand them, and Jesus just cuts right to the heart, doesn't he? He summarizes all the law and the prophets uh, very clearly. He says, love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we know, as we look at the commandments, as we look at the law of God, there's no way to do any of it without first loving the Lord, without understanding that He is God. There's no way for us to keep the Sabbath. There's no way for us to really understand how it is that we're supposed to tell the truth, or that we're supposed to be faithful, that we're supposed to uh, not look to other people's things, unless we understand who God is. And we see, or begin to see the world through His eyes, and through the love that the Lord has for us. Indeed, then, we can't get to that place where we're able to love our neighbor as ourselves. And it's really important that we understand this because uh, the golden rule, which is very commonly held, is not quite the same thing, is it? The golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself or treat others as you would like to be treated, is kind of a lesser version, if you will, this treat others the way you want to be treated. It starts with myself. Let me take care of myself, do what's good for me, and then maybe I'll learn how to do what's good for you. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's saying, love your neighbor in place of yourself. Uh, That we're putting the self in that position, uh, that we're putting the other in the position of ourselves. And so really Jesus is showing the the self-sacrifice that's required in this love. That the love that we have is a self-sacrificial love. And so his uh, conclusion is so powerful, uh, and it so completely summarizes uh, this understanding of righteousness that they have no more questions for him. And now it's time for Jesus to start asking the questions. So after he's been bombarded, now he starts with the questions, and he goes right to the central question, the most important question that we read in Scripture, the one that we all have to know the answer to, and that is, who is Jesus? If we know who Jesus is, everything else falls into place. So he asks this question about who the Son of Man is, who the Messiah is. He calls him the Christ. This is the Greek word for Messiah, the one that had been promised to ancient Israel to save them from their enemies. And so Jesus says, who do they say the Messiah is? Who do they say this this Christ is? Uh, And so they say he's the Son of David. Well, this is exactly right, isn't it? This is no news uh, that David had been promised this uh, everlasting kingdom and that his uh, eventual heir would come and save the Jews from their uh, enemies surrounding them. And so they say, of course, he's David's son. And then Jesus asks, well, how is it that uh, David calls him Lord? 
If he is this natural heir, if he's this natural grand, great grandson of David's, how does he call him Lord? To call him Lord is to call him God, right? He's worshiping him. So how is it that David could worship his grandson? And so what, what Jesus has done is he's identified one of the central paradoxes of Christianity. And Christianity is built upon paradoxes. Paradoxes are two things that seem to be contradictory, that look contradictory on the outside, but that are actually in agreement. Jesus' death upon the cross for our salvation is the central paradox of Christianity. How would you destroy death? By death. That's a paradox. You can't destroy death by death, and yet Jesus does. And so these things that look like they're in contradiction are actually in agreement. How is it that uh, the Christ, the Messiah, can be a man? and God at the same time. How can he be the God-man? This is the central paradox of Christianity. God became man so that man might become one with God. It looks contradictory on the outside, but it is consistent and whole and true on the inside. God became man so that man might become one with God. And he does that by taking on the flesh of David, by taking on the heir of David, right? The the Virgin Mary is in the line of David, and so he fulfills that promise that had been kept in the ancient world. And so the only response now to understanding that Jesus is God, that he is man born in the line of David, and that he is God himself, the only response is to worship him. The only other option they had was to kill him. And of course, that's the option that they took, right? There's really no other option. If you've got somebody before you that's claiming to be God, you've really only got two options. Either kill them because they're dangerous or worship them because it's true. And of course, they chose to kill him. But Jesus, in his truth, shows us that he should be worshipped. And the question there is, how do we worship him? How do we worship the Lord? What does it mean when we say that we're here to worship him today? How do we worship God? And the way that we worship the Lord is we come into his will. We come into agreement with him. We come to live our lives according to his will, according to his pattern. We do the things that he calls us to do. There's no other way to worship God. People talk about uh, going out into nature, enjoying all these things. It's wonderful. We're supposed to enjoy the creation, but we're not worshiping the Lord when we do that, right? To worship the Lord is to come into obedience with his will to follow his ways. And so in Exodus, we show here uh, the central understanding of this loving our neighbor as ourself. Moses and Exodus Exodus is showing us uh, the way in which we do that. And who does he pick to show that? He doesn't pick the rich and famous because nobody needs any help with that, right? Giving the rich and famous their due. Uh, it's common, you'll see people in all walks of life to see somebody rich and famous and say, oh no, after you, right? Take mine, right? It's the foolishness of wanting to participate in that fame uh, and, and that, that wealth. But the Lord is picking the, those that don't have any protection for themselves, those that have no buffer, right? Those that have no one to take care of them. So who does he outline here? The sojourner, right? The one who has no uh, natural affinity with those around them, someone who doesn't have uh, family in that community to protect them, the sojourner who's on their own, uh, the widow, the fatherless child, or who we call the orphan, 
right? The poor who only has his cloak to care for him. These are the ones that the Lord says you're supposed to be serving and treating righteously. This is the only way that we can possibly measure our ability to follow the the will of God is if those that we're putting in place of ourselves are those uh, that have no defense uh, but in their prayer to the Most High God. And the Lord says that we're supposed to do this because He is compassionate. So the why, why is it we're doing this? Why do we love our neighbors ourselves? Why is it that we're taking care of them this way? It's because God is first compassionate. He's the one that has compassion on them, and then we come to participate in that compassion. That's how we come to worship the Lord and come into His will, that we participate in His compassion. We begin to see each other the way that God sees us. And we can't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think today I'll be compassionate. It doesn't work like that. We have to practice. It takes day in, day out practice. And this is what St. Paul is talking about in his letter to the Ephesians. He's talking about the work that he's done, the practice that he's done to be compassionate for the Thessalonians. He's been working at this. And the example that he uses of compassion uh, is one that uh, is without equal. And that is that of the nursing mother. There is no greater example that we have in compassion than the nursing mother. Think for a moment about what the mother does. The mother has to sleep, she has to eat, she has to care for her own body, right? It's required of her. She has to do things for herself. But the nursing mother that does these things doesn't do them selfishly. She does them with an eye towards caring for her child, right? She says, I need to feed, I need to eat good food, I need to water, I need to make sure that I'm well rested so that I can care for that that I love. Right, So all that she does for herself are good things, but she does them out of the love for the child. And when she nurses the child, if you've ever been around a nursing mother, they'll tell you the laundry list of the things they think that they should also be doing. Right, I was nursing and I couldn't do my laundry and I couldn't clean my house and I couldn't read to my other children and I couldn't do all these things. Right, She's making sacrifice after sacrifice and she's having to, to put all of her energy, indeed her entire body, into feeding out of her own self this nursing child who has no other recourse, who has no protection, who has no way of caring for itself, no way of giving back to the mother, right? But it's all through the practice of the mother self-sacrificing that she cares for that child. And and the, the compassion in her, the love in her grows. I love you all, but I love you more today than the first day I met you. Isn't that wonderful? The first day that you all came to church, I was so glad to see you, but I'm more and more glad every time that you come because I get to know you and get to understand you and the fellowship that we have builds and grows so that the love that we have for one another also grows because we're practicing. We're practicing compassion for one another. And St. Paul says this about the Thessalonians. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, This is how he talks about the Thessalonians. He says, I am affectionately desirous of you. Right? This is the language of a mother for a child. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but ourselves. He wants to give of himself, right? In the pattern of Christ, to give his own life for the Thessalonians because he has grown in love with them. Because we had become, you had become very dear to us. They had become dear. They weren't dear immediately, they became dear through the sacrifices that Paul and his companions had made for the Thessalonians. They became more and more dear to him 
as they ministered to them. And that's the promise that we have. The more that we minister to one another, the more that we offer to one another, we can come here and just sit down for a minute and then go back out the door. We've missed a fantastic opportunity to grow in love and fellowship, to have compassion on one another. We're being given an opportunity here to sacrifice and to truly love one another. And the pattern of our Lord and Savior and of his apostles. So what's the big deal about David? Sometimes we look at the story of King David and just say, well, that's history. You know, it's the history of the Jews and the history of who Jesus was in that time and place. But we really don't own that history for ourselves, right? If we're going to be born again into the life of Christ, we are born into the family of King David. And we have to know who now our great-grandfather is. David becomes our father in faith. So who was he? The first thing that we need to look at is that David is the last person who would be chosen, right? All the other tales, the, the Greeks and the Romans and all that, they take a mighty hero who's proven himself and then the gods show him favor, right? The God of Israel does the exact opposite. He says, do you see that little punk kid out there that everybody's forgotten about that's being a shepherd? I'm going to make him king. And I'm going to make him king while there's another king already on the throne. That's an impossible situation. Saul is already king. He's already leading the armies of Israel. And the Lord says, I'm going to take it from this mighty man, this mighty warrior, and I'm going to give it to a little kid who's taking care of his family's sheep. He's the last son. He's the smallest. He's the most insignificant. When Samuel goes to anoint David as king, he sees all these great sons, all these great warriors of Jesse. And the Lord says, none of them. And Samuel says, is there anybody left? And Jesse says, well, yeah, the the little runt that's out there shepherding. And Samuel says, bring him over. Over. Right? So he chooses this runt who's a shepherd and says, This is the one who's going to be king. David had to see this and say, How can that be? How is that possible? And why would you want to? But David, through the power of the Holy Spirit, sees what the Lord has for him. He sees the kingdom, he sees the power. And so, though he's small, he walks in the confidence of God. When it's time for the, the, the people of Israel to be warring with the Philistines, you'll remember they go to battle, and Jesse sends his mightiest sons to battle, and David, even though he's been anointed to be king, is still feeding the sheep. He goes right back to being a shepherd. Some people think, oh, the Lord's given me a vision, he's given me a purpose, he's given me something to do, I've got to go and do it right away. After David's anointed, he goes back to shepherd the sheep. And while his brothers are fighting the Philistines and they're all cowering in fear before Goliath, this massive mountain of a, of a man who's coming to destroy them, what does David do? How does David get to the battlefield? He goes to bring his brothers lunch. He's the lunch boy. He brings his brothers lunch and what does he find? He finds these so-called mighty men of God cowering in fear. And David says, what are you all doing? God's promised us victory. He's delivered the Philistines into our hands. He says, when I was out caring for my father's sheep, I killed a lion and a bear by the power of God. If the Lord can deliver a lion and a bear into my hand, what will he do to this godless Philistine? And they all looked at him with amazement. Why? Because he had faith. He said, I know what God has promised. And so I'm going to walk knowing that this is what God has promised for me. 
And so he doesn't take on the armor of those mighty men. He doesn't try to pretend to be them. He's still the shepherd boy. He's still the the small boy. And he kills him the way a small boy would with his slingshot. To show the Lord doesn't need this mighty man, this strong person, this great warrior with all this wealth and power. He chose a small boy to do it. And a small boy is the one that kills that godless Philistine. And the Lord will deliver them into our hands today. The enemies of the gospel. We've got nothing to worry about. We've got nothing to be afraid of. Are there enemies in this world? Absolutely. Will there be hardship? You better believe it. But God is one. His victory is one. And David is our grandfather. Our king is mighty and he is one. May we worship our God and our King and walk in His ways and bring glory to His name this day and forevermore.